Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 52. I never know what to say after you say that. <laughs> I I'm can't just tell. Putting that out there. I never know what to say. But here we are, everyone. We're back. Episode 52. Ready with more dumb love for you. Sally, how was your week? Um, you know what? My week has been super busy work-wise. I I don't talk about this a lot, but I work for a nonprofit. And part of what I am doing is doing all of these like protest rights resources. And it's been just a lot, just very satisfying work, but um, stressful. And, but I finished earlier tonight and then I watched the, this is, we're recording this on Wednesday. Um, So I just watched the town hall on police reform with Obama and it just was so refreshing. I'm like high on hope. I love Obama so much. I took like oh 18 pictures of my screen. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was just nice to listen to people talk. Nobody said Trump once That's amazing. the whole time. It was very positive and real, but like big overarching reform thinking, but then also talking about practical steps, which, oh man, wouldn't you love, wouldn't that great? Just the practicality <laughs> of it. It just gives I, me a, a shiver. I know. And I've had half a beer, so I'm I'm ready for this episode, man. Hell yeah, Sally. And thanks yeah. for everything that you do. You know, what you do is hard work and it's important work and I'm grateful. Oh, thank you're you, Jen. You're doing it, Sally. You're welcome. You're welcome. It. You're welcome for my service. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to pay you. That's what your job is for. Your job will pay you. But oh. I will um I'll thank you. Oh, I appreciate okay. you. <laughs> Dude, let's All get right. into some quick, quick, quackies. Let's do it. Okay. You're going first this week. Okay. I'm going first. And I had another quickie prepared, but then I read this story and I just couldn't not do it. Okay. Um, and it's really outside of the norm for me because it is not about how big or weird or whatever somebody's penis is. Yeah. Um, this is actually about love of fellow man, like just love of other human beings. Okay. So, okay. So I got um, nervous. I was like, please don't be doing the same quickie I'm doing. <laughs> I was like, love of Okay. Love of what? This is not love um, of man. Okay. <laughs> so on Monday night, dozens of protesters spent the night in a stranger's house in Washington, D.C. after he opened his door to protect them from being arrested by police for violating the city's curfew. So on Monday, Mayor Muriel Browser in Washington, D.C. ordered a 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. citywide curfew in response to what have been sometimes violent protests, but mostly peaceful protests against police brutality, Rahul Duby said he was sitting on his stoop and he had let some of the protesters come in to charge their phones inside and use his bathroom. And then police moved in. He said there was a big bang. There was spray <gasps> that my eyes started burning, oh screaming like I've never heard before. And I've described it as a human tsunami. It's the best I can say. Like I could see it for about He said I could see it a quarter of a block coming down the street. And so he stood at his door and he was just yelling, get in, get in the house (gasps) for 10 minutes. And this protester named Mika said, I guess someone gave an order and they just started pushing us, spraying mace, trampling people. And that's when everyone started panicking. So Mika was looking around. He saw a friend run up the steps of Rahul's home and He said he got in and he looked out the window and he saw more police officers than he could count. And I'll show you pictures and it's crazy. And that there were all these people outside getting arrested. So police reported that 300 people were were arrested on Monday night, including 194 in the area of Rahul's house. And Rahul told the news station WJLA that about 70 protesters got inside of his home and that he said it was pandemonium, ma'am, for about a half an hour and a half while they tried to help all the people who'd been pepper sprayed. 
Wow. Throughout the night, police tried several times to get the protesters to come outside. (gasps) And they were like, yeah, we're not coming out if you're going to arrest us. So he said at one point that Raul was able to have pizza delivered and that some members of the community also brought food. So people were tweeting about this. And all of a sudden, the community swarmed around to help these kids who were stuck inside. This woman, Becca Femish, lives about two blocks away from Raul, and she and three other people stayed on his stoop overnight to observe the police activity and check in with protesters. And she said they also worked to organize rides to get the young people to come to get them home once the curfew had lifted. And she said that around 5 a.m. with about an hour of the curfew to go, community members just started showing up left and right, bringing food and water and hand sanitizer in their cars and offering to take people home. Oh, my God. So she said there are actually more volunteers than they needed. And what, so the, when the protesters came outside, a lot of the volunteers stayed and helped clean up. And she said that actually she saw several other residents on the street let protesters in their house. And she said, there's currently a global pandemic, and we've been told, do not let people in your house. Do not be sharing space with people. And you know, these random people made what I consider is a huge sacrifice to try and guarantee the safety of young people they didn't know. And so the guy whose house it was, Raul, um, said that he considers the young protesters family and that he was relieved to get texts and messages that they were all home safe. Oh, wow. And he said, and this is the part that made me cry. He said, oh. I hope I hope that my 13-year-old grows up to be just as amazing as they are. I hope that they continue to fight and I hope that they go out there today peacefully as they did yesterday and not blink because our country needs them and ne- needs you and everybody now more than ever. Oh my God, that is such a, that is such a story of humanity that we all just need so badly right now. Yes. Wow. Happy, uplifting story of community and community love and love of fellow people. And what do you have? I love it. Man, <laughs> my quickie is topical um, because it's corona related. We were talking about this. The, I feel like it was last episode. We were talking about couples that have only dated during the quarantine, quarantine couples. Yes. I was yeah. telling you about my friend that was just – had hooked up with a girl and they spent so much time throughout the quarantine that now they're like in a serious relationship. Yeah. Well, this this is a similar story but a little bit – a little bit more intense than that. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is a story for People Magazine by Jason Dwayne Hahn. So it's a hinge couple, Matt Robertson and Connie Lee. I didn't know what hinge was. I had to Google it. Is it a it. dating like, What's site? a hinge? Yes, it is, Sally. Your instincts oh, okay. are correct. <laughs> it is. It's a dating website. The, this New York City couple, uh, Matt Robertson and Connie Lee, uh, met via Hinge, went on, on two dates, and they had a good time. This is right when people were starting to talk about corona, but you know nobody really yeah. knew exactly what it was. They started texting back and forth after their second date, uh, which I guess went very well, and mm-hmm. they were joking about needing a vacation over text. And then the next thing they know, they found themselves looking up destinations of where to go on vacation. Matt says, we were just joking about how you both needed a vacation. Let's go place. Let's go someplace warm. Let's get away. Stuff like that. But very much kidding around. He says. He said. But then it turned real because neither one of them were backing down. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> "I'm always testing people." And when she wasn't backing down, I thought, "All right, I'll keep going." And I could totally see myself doing something this when I, like this when I was younger. You know, like oh, yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, I'll do it if you fucking do it. Yeah. And so the next thing they know, they found some cheap flights to. Uh, Costa Rica because flights were starting to go like the cost of flights were starting to go down rapidly. Right. This was before the quarantine. And so they ended up going to Costa Rica. At the time, he said that they had no idea that it was going to that the coronavirus was going to become this historic global event that it's now transformed into. Uh, He said this was at the time when it wasn't that crazy. I remember you kind of heard about it in China and we were just starting to hear about it here. And he said, Trump was still saying it's not that big of a deal. It's the flu or whatever. That was your first mistake. Mm-hmm. 
don't listen. <laughs> we're, we're turning into a very political podcast over here. Well, these times, I mean, just they call need it. it. They yeah. call for it. You can't stay on the sidelines. I don't. I don't think anybody has ever been confused about where we stand. So. Yeah, I think yeah. I think that's safe to say. But yeah. um so they ended up going to Costa Rica and what started out as a fun trip, they did zip lining and they took a cocktail and a ceviche class on the fourth day. It was supposed to be a five day vacation. And on the fourth day, they said that they noticed that their hotel was becoming increasingly empty. I mean, they probably weren't reading the news. They were, you know, making ceviche. Right. Swimming yeah. in the ocean. They're in Costa Rica. <laughs> Stay off your don't be on your phone when you're in Costa Rica. And he said around day three or four, there were only eight of us left at the hotel. And that's when things started to change. I think it was day four when they announced the level four travel advisory. And within the 24 hour window is where everything started to really shift because that was the time when flights basically stopped. So their flight got canceled the next day and they have not been able to get a flight out since they have been in Costa Rica together (gasps) on their third date for 60 days. Oh my God. They, so is been, it amazing or is it awful? Well, so they've been paying, the bad part is, is that they've been, they can't get back home and they've been paying out of pocket for, you know, various hotels and Airbnbs waiting to uh-huh. get a seat on a plane back home. And they're like starting to run out of funds. So they're like trying to find places to stay. But the good part about it is that they actually have really great chemistry. Oh, um, good. Yeah. Oh my God. Can you imagine if you're just like, ooh, there's just nothing there? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, Connie says that I don't think we really had any expectations of what it would be like. I feel like we're both similar in the fact that we go with the flow, seeing what it's like. I feel like we have a pretty similar approach to dating. We weren't looking for anything serious just to have a good time. We were both pretty independent. Well, I guess you have to be kind of go with the flow people <laughs> to be stuck in Costa Rica for 60 days. So she said, we've had a good balance of having their own space. So they separate, but then they come together to do fun activities and stuff like that. And she said, so far, I'm very much going with the flow. And so far, the flow's been good, she said. All right. And uh, and Matt says, I feel like it's been an experience where you learn more about yourself. I would even survive this long with one person. It's the longest I've ever spent nonstop with one person. This is like the dating. <laughs> he said, this is like the equivalent of dating in dog years. <laughs> Aw. But so they've, you know, really gotten to know each other and they're just rolling with it and making the most of it. They said that they... One thing that they'll bring back with them when they finally get back to the States is the local expression, Pura Vida, which means simple life, which is the credo for many people in that country. They said it's kind of been our saying the whole time, you just go with it. People always say, how are you doing? Pura Vida, everything's good, make the most of life, and it's been our motto to get through this. So, And then they said that they're going to get Pura Vida tattoos before they leave, whenever that time comes. (laughs) (laughs) I oh. feel like that's a mistake, but okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't maybe don't do the tattoo part, but I'm glad you have the story that you can remember forever. Yeah. But um yeah. God, that's crazy. Can you imagine? It's crazy and it also sounds so amazing, doesn't it? Like Yeah, it sounds like yeah. an adventure for sure. And, it does. You know, I mean, who knows? They could that could be their soulmate. You never know. And then they have a story to tell forever. Yeah. I love it. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a crazy story? Yes, please. Let's please, do it. Please, okay. sir, may I have another? <laughs> you may. Uh, that's what I was waiting for, just to please. And for you to call me sir, finally. <laughs> so this is not our typical story, but... It does have a lot of parallels for us during this particular time, especially you and me, because, Jen, the story starts right here in Decatur, Georgia, at Emory University in the middle of a pandemic. Oh. So this was December 17th, 1968, and what was called- A different pandemic? A different pandemic. Yeah. It turns out there have been a lot of pandemics. It's actually kind of comforting to know. Yeah. That actually makes me feel better. (laughs) 
So this one was called the Hong Kong flu, and it had spread across the student body of Emory. So the this was a flu pandemic whose outbreak in 1968 and 1969 killed an estimated one to four million people across the globe. And it's called the Hong Kong flu because it started in, you guessed it, mainland China and then spread to Hong Kong. So... <laughs> In comparison to other pandemics of the 20th century, the Hong Kong flu had a pretty low death rate. It was actually able to spread through the population without restrictions on any economic activity. And then a vaccine was available four months after it started, which I just think in like, wow. it's like now looking at where we are now, it's kind like, of crazy. But but it actually, this virus that it originated from returned in the 1969 and 1970 flu season, resulting in a second deadlier wave of deaths. So this strain of flu actually remains in circulation today. Wow. Um, okay. So Barbara Mackle was a student at Emory. And on December 12th, she had called her mom, Jane, to tell her that she had caught the flu and she was very sick. She said she wanted to stay at school to finish her exams. So Jane, Barbara's mom, flew to Atlanta to take care of her daughter. And the infirmaries on campus were packed with other students, and it was hard to get medicine. So Jane actually took Barbara, and they checked into the Roadway M, which is indicator on the outskirts of campus. And there, Jane took care of Barbara while Jane studied, or sorry, Jane took care of Barbara while Barbara studied, and she would go back to campus to take her exams and then come home to the hotel and just pass out. She was so sick. So she eventually, she got a little bit better. The plan was that as soon as Barbara was finished with exams, the two would drive back to Coral Gables, Florida, where they were from. And Barbara had a boyfriend. His name was Stuart Woodward. And he had been to visit her earlier on the evening of December 17th before Barbara and her mom went to bed. And then at 4 a.m., there was a knock on the hotel door. And the person knocking at the door claimed to be a policeman saying that Stuart had been in an accident. And so Jane opened the door, even though Barbara urged her not to. And when the door opened, two people, one big man and one smaller person, both wearing ski masks, forced themselves into the hotel. Oh, my God. They chloroformed Jane, (gasps) and then they bound and gagged her. And then the two told Barbara that they would do the same to her, but she promised that she would do what they wanted. She just assumed that they were there to rob them. But instead, they forced Barbara at gunpoint into the back of their car and told her that she was being kidnapped. Oh, my God. I know. So it gets it gets worse. Okay. So they drove 20 miles north to a spot near Duluth, Georgia, and... The driver exited the highway at South Berkeley Lake Road, turned off again into a patch of woods, and then he took the car, a Volvo, about 100 feet back through the trees. And the driver got out, pulled away tree limbs to reveal what looked like a coffin buried (gasps) two feet into the ground. The capsule was roughly three feet wide, three and a half feet deep, and seven feet long. And it was constructed of plywood, and the interior was lined with fiberglass. The corners were reinforced with steel brackets. So the big man popped the lid off and launched into like this proud explanation to Barbara of how he had equipped this tomb with everything she would need to keep her safe until he received the ransom. So inside the capsule, I know, was food water, which was laced with sedatives, a fan, a lamp, a blanket, and a sweater. And then two flexible plastic pipes came through the the top of it <gasps> to bring f- fresh air in. Oh, my God. I'm like having a panic attack just thinking about I, I know. this. I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. Okay. So Barbara begged them to take her anywhere else, not to bury her. But the big man held Barbara's arms while the smaller man applied a chloroform-soaked <gasps> towel to her face. And so she was drowsy but not completely knocked out when they lowered her into the tomb. Oh, my God. And so oh they God. handed her a photo that said kidnapped, and they took a Polaroid of her. And in the first one, they said they thought she looked kind of scared and drugged. And so the big man was like, oh, can you smile? We want it, We want people to be able to see her alive. And so he took this other photo. And so she cried out again and again as they fastened the lid with 14 screws and then buried her beneath hundreds of pounds of dirt and camouflaging branches. She was buried two feet under the ground. 
And Barbara listened through the air tubes as they sh- as the shovel stopped. She heard <sighs> footsteps followed by the sound of a car starting and driving away. It was 8.30 a.m. on December 17th. So she lay there, scared to death. She was screaming out, kicking, looking for any escape. And eventually she regained her composure and she took stock of her surroundings. She found a Kotex box in, I guess they were like, well, just in case, you know, it's your time of the month. What do girls need? (laughs) Put some of them in there. Right. So she she found a long typed note and it started, um, do not be alarmed. You are safe. You are presently inside a fiberglass reinforced capsule buried beneath the ground near the house in which your kidnappers are staying. Your status will be checked on approximately uh, ugh. your status will be checked on approximately every two hours. It was a, a rambling note. It went on to talk about Whoa. the capsule and all of the ways it was designed to make sure she stayed alive. We're sure your, your father will pay the ransom we have asked in less than one week. When your father pays a ransom, we will tell him where you are and he'll come for you. Should he fail to pay, we will still release you. So be calm and rest. You'll be home for Christmas one way or the other. Wow. So meanwhile, Jane, Barbara's mom, had woken up and managed to get herself out of the hotel room, but she was still bound and gagged. And so she somehow opened the door of her car and then pounded her head on the steering wheel until someone woke up and found her. And so the police were called. They started to look for Barbara and her captors, and they immediately didn't think that it was a random attack, but that the reason that Barbara was taken was for ransom, because Barbara, it turned out, was the heiress to this huge real estate fortune. And the police were right, because the next morning, there was a phone call to the Mackle home in Coral Gables, and the kidnapper told them that there was a set of instructions buried in their yard. The instructions demanded $500,000 in ransom and said that if, uh, if the Mackles agreed to pay, they should put an ad in the paper that read, Loved one, please come home. We will pay all expense and meet you anywhere at any time, your family. So they put the ad in the paper and it ran the next morning. And then that night on December 18th, the kidnappers called the Mackle home and gave instructions. Robert Mackle, who's a father, was to leave the money on a seawall along Fair Isle Causeway at Biscayne Bay, which was like a few miles from the Mackle's mansion in Coral Gables. Uh But as he was going to make the money drop, these two cops happened by, not involved in the kidnapping, they just happened by, and the kidnappers got spooked and the whole plan was foiled. Kidnappers left, but what they left behind was a getaway car, and in it was a ton of evidence. So they had all this information now from this car about the kidnappers, and it was actually revealed that the kidnappers were not two dudes, but instead were a couple named Gary Chris. And Ruth Eisman Shearer, who had been disguised as a man during the kidnapping. And in the car, they even found a collection of lacy bikini panties and a racy nude and racy nude Polaroids of both Christ and Eisman. And then they found a third Polaroid of Barbara holding a sign <gasps> that had the word kidnapped on it. Oh my God. So, okay. So Gary Christ was born in. April 29th, 1945, to a fishing family. His father, James, ran a boat out of Pelican, Alaska. Gary was a troubled kid. He was just this incorrigible car thief. And as he got older, things just got worse. When he was, he was like in and out of juvie. But when he was 18, he was in juvie for stealing cars. And it was actually there during a 14-month stint that he began to design the perfect kidnapping Because it was his belief that most kidnappings failed due to poor planning and execution. And he was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to, I'm going to do the perfect kidnapping. So he decided that the perfect target would be a young woman. He said, uh, children were too much of a hassle. And he thought abducting a male victim would be a physical challenge. So he also thought that holding a victim while awaiting ransom would be another challenge. So he thought, oh, we'll bury the victim alive in a secure tomb. And then i mean bing bang boom you're done so he like worked out all of these details like how to contact the victim's parents how and when the ransom drop would be made getaway plans all of this stuff but he decided to wait until he had the right 
the right time and the right victim. So then in March of 1965, he ended up marrying a woman named Carmen Simon. But then Chris actually celebrated his first wedding anniversary by beginning a five-year prison sentence for auto theft. His son Vince was born while he was locked up. But just eight months after he got to jail on his prison sentence, he actually escaped from prison by scaling two fences at the prison and running for his life. And his wife and his infant son fled with him to Boston, where he grew a beard to conceal his features, and he assumed a new identity as George Deacon. And he actually was very smart. And so he landed a job as a research assistant at MIT. And the way they describe him is like, you know, he was very smart, but he was also kind of a know-it-all. And I just imagine him as like goodwill hunting, but like oh, shittier. Yeah. Yeah, um, like them apples. Yeah. <laughs> he and Carmen had this kind of conventional lifestyle for a while, for about two years. They lived in a trailer park. They had a second son. And then something happened that they don't, quite go into details. None of the articles I read quite went into details. He got worried that he was going to be found out. So he ended up getting a new job as a Marine technician at the University of Miami, again, under the name of George Deacon. In September of 1968, he was a boat hand on a two-week research trip to Bermuda with a group of graduate students. And during the trip, he began an affair with Ruth Eisman Shire who at the time was 26. And I should say at the time that this all happened, Gary Christ was only 23. So Ruth was a bright, petite, pretty grad student. She was from Honduras. Her parents were Austrian Jews who had fled to Central America to avoid Nazi persecution. Mm-hmm. And Christ was like this big six-foot man, and he towered over the top of Ruth Eisman. She was described as sweet and charming, but also everyone said she could hold her own with the overbearing Christ. She spoke Spanish, German, English, and French, and she had a quick smile and a European flair. So to Christ, Ruth was this like anecdote because she was into sex. And He says, you know, of course, after the birth of their two sons, the sex life with Carmen, his wife, had gone stale. Mm. So, you know, to his delight, Ruth was willing to experiment with him in the bedroom. And one thing they enjoyed together was taking risque Polaroids of one another. So actually, three weeks before Christmas, Gary Chris informed his wife that he no longer loved her. And she packed up and moved back to California with the children. And she actually later told reporters, she was like, I... I bear no grudge against Gary Christ. She said she wasn't surprised about his mistress because he often talked about wanting to lead a sexually open lifestyle, but she just wasn't into it. She said, Gary didn't want to leave, lead a mediocre life. He wants to be remembered. So Ruth Eisman soon moved sounds right like in. She dodged a bullet there. Sounds like she dodged a huge bullet. Holy yeah. Fuck. So yeah. Ruth moved into Chris trailer and pretty soon he let her in on his kidnapping plan. So they decided they were going to take the $500,000 ransom and flee to Europe, and he told her they would live happily ever after. So it was then that Chris decided to start looking for his victim. He said he was looking for a rich, tough-minded female, someone who could stand up to the trauma of being buried alive, and that Barbara J. Mackle fit that profile. So after the botched ransom drop, Chris and Ruth decided that it was safer to split up. Their plan was to meet back up in Austin, Texas, and then escape to Europe with the money. So Ruth got on a bus, and Gary Christ called up Barbara's dad, Robert Mackle, to set up a second money drop. This time, the drop went as planned. Christ got the $500,000 and got away. He told Robert Mackle that if anyone stopped him before he had time to escape, that they would not get the location of Barbara's capsule. So 15 hours after the ransom pickup, the Atlanta FBI gets a call giving them directions to the burial site. And an army of agents raced to Duluth. The first agents who found the spot, they just noticed the two air pipes sticking out of the ground. And they heard like a faint cry. Oh my God. And so they spoke to her through the air tubes and then just frantically like with their bare hands move the earth to free her and she just kept saying please don't leave me and the agents said we we never would so she was finally freed after 83 hours underground oh my god 
She was dehydrated. She was stiff. She told one of her rescuers, you're the handsomest man I've ever seen. And she was very quickly whisked back to Miami in her father's private jet. And she made a brief appearance for the press. She insisted that her kidnappers treated her humanely and that she was feeling absolutely wonderful. And Barbara Mackel was asked how she remained so positive, not only during the kidnapping, but after when she showed no ill effects from the whole ordeal. She said she claimed, um, no, so she said she spent the time there imagining Christmas with her family and that she just never let herself doubt that she would be rescued. Oh my gosh. So after she made a couple of very brief appearances in right at, right after it happened. But after that, she never spoke about the incident. But she did, actually, at the urging of Richard Nixon, who happened to be a family friend, she did write a book about the whole ordeal. And she said, this will be this is going to be the only time that she would ever talk about it. And then she was done. And she has kept that. She actually wrote the book 83 Hours Till Dawn. And it was made into two movies, The Longest Night in 1972 and 83 Hours Till Dawn in 1990. And Barbara actually did end up marrying her boyfriend, Stuart Woodward, and they settled down in South Florida. The two were married 43 years before his death in 2013 and had two children. Gary Christ was caught pretty quickly after the getaway because he bought a boat using a fake name. It was $2,200, but he paid it all in crisp $20 bills. And it was all over the news that the ransom had been paid in $20 bills. So wow. the guy at the marina was like, uh, I think we might have your dude right <laughs> like right here. Wow. And then Ruth Eisman Shire, who was, was still at large, and she actually became the first woman to ever make the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And 79 days after the kidnapping, a destitute woman was arrested in Mormon, Oklahoma, and it was Ruth. She didn't look like any of her pictures. She didn't look like the University of Miami graduate student. She instead was a scared and impoverished woman, and she was trying to apply for a job as a car hop. She was transported back to Georgia for trial, where Chris was already in jail preparing for his trial. So Ruth Eisman was convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison. She was paroled after serving four years, and she was deported back to her native Honduras. She actually came from like a somewhat wealthy family, and her mother had died while she was in prison. So when Ruth got back to Honduras, she was only 30, she inherited land and money, and she then married a wealthy businessman, and then she had two kids of her own, and now she still lives in Honduras, and she's a grandma. How do you break that to the person that you're dating that like, here's the thing. Here's the I thing. I need to tell you before we get married is I was arrested for kidnapping. Oh, my God. Like And burying someone beneath the ground. Yeah. Alive. Yeah. Wow. I mean, maybe you should be like, I mean, you know, but I'm sexually adventurous. I know. <laughs> like, did you get that? Points? I'm kind of hot. I'm hot. <laughs> You guys are like, yeah, whatever. That's fine. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> so um, how long was Kristen jail for? Okay, so say? this is uh, a bit of – no, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. This is kind of a crazy – this is a crazy oh, yeah, rambling no, ending. So, is it bad? Well, okay, so he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 1969, but he was released on parole after 10 years. He actually had married a prison pen pal. Her name was Joan Jones, which I think is great. <laughs> Joan Jones. Nice to meet you. And she Joan? helped. Joan Jones. Jones. Okay. For some reason, I was, I, I like, right as I was saying that, I was like, oh, J-O-A-N. I was yeah. Like, I'm thinking, like, Joan Jones, like, J-O-N-E. I was like, who does that? Oh, oh, Joan. My Q-set. Got it. Okay. I always live with J-O-N-E, J-O-N-E-S. Joan Jones. So she happened to be friends with a man named James T. Morris, who was the chairman of the Georgia Parole Board. So she ended up lobbying him to get Chris release. And he had been a model prisoner for much of his time. He had tutored fellow inmates. He had taught them to read and write. He took a college course. He trained as an EMT. And he worked in the prison hospital. So just 10 years into his life sentence at age 33, he was allowed to walk free. Wow. And he and so he and Joan Jones moved back to Alaska where he started taking college classes and he had this lifelong dream of becoming a doctor because the thing about Gary Christ is that he 
thought and probably still thinks that he is smarter than everyone else. And so he was like, I owe it to people to become a doctor, right? So now, were they actually, ever saying like he's innocent? He's innocent? Or no, were like he's sorry. Yeah, it was just like this. What they they said? He didn't mean um, to do it. No, they just said this wasn't a violent crime. He actually went out of his way to make sure she was safe. Oh, and she my God. and like Barbara Mackle herself said that. They were humane. They were humane. And so there was no real harm here is what they were saying because Barbara Mackle projected this air of like, this didn't affect my life. And which is 100% her prerogative as a victim, you know, like, great. That's a, what an amazing, resilient person. But he used that as kind of like, well, see, nobody was hurt. And I didn't take any of the money, you know, the money, I didn't get away with it. So 10 years is enough. So he got this parole and he moved back to Alaska. And then because he wanted to go to law, uh, go to med school, but you can't go to med school if you're a felon, he actually got a pardon and it allowed him to attend medical school in the uh, Caribbean. And so he practiced there for a while and then he got a medical license in Indiana and he was a doctor there for several years. But then his license was actually revoked in 2003 for lying about something in his residency. And this happened after a newspaper in Indiana published a story about the kidnapping. And he actually told the paper, he said, I think a man should be judged as much for the last half of his life as by the first. So he was kind of shading himself as the victim of this. Oh, my God. After he lost his medical license, Kristen Joan Jones and her son all moved to Auburn, Georgia, which is near Athens. And Chris and his wife's son, whose name is Jackie Greason, incorporated a company called Greason and Crisp Construction. And the company claimed that it did sheet metal fabrication and bulletproof rooms. And it turns out it was just a front to smuggle cocaine and people. Oh, my God. Yes. So in Holy March of 2000. Shit. I know. And there's more. There's so much more to it that like, I mean, I'm already have been talking for a long time. So but this. No. This God. story is nuts. There's like, you got to read more about it because it's really it's really great. Um, wow. So in March of 2006, Chris was arrested on a sailboat off the coast of Alabama with 14 kilograms of cocaine, which is 31 pounds of cocaine, reportedly worth about a million dollars and four undocumented people. They also found a cocaine lab under his home in Auburn. So he was sentenced to only five years and five months (gasps) in prison, and he was released in November of 2010. But then in 2010, before his release, a U.S. District Court judge actually revoked his supervised release For a violation of his probation, he had left the country without permission. He'd sailed to Cuba and South America on a sailboat. So he was then sentenced to 40 months in prison. The most recent I could find was that as of 2016, he was back out of prison and again living in Auburn, Georgia. Oh, my God. That's like two hours away from here. Not e- yeah, not even. It's yeah, crazy. So anyway, so that is the story of the kidnapping of Barbara Mackle. Holy shit, that's insane. Okay, I have to say, I I did a really poor job of naming my sources. Um, so I just want to say that my my quickie, the source was a CNN.com article, and this I got from a True TV article. Uh, Murderpedia, Wikipedia, and the Coastal Daily News. Wow, it's not like it seems like one of those documentaries that, like, a Netflix documentary that starts out one way and then it just keeps having like all these extra episodes. Yes, where twists and turns. Holy, oh my god, that's insane! That's crazy. Isn't that a crazy story. Hey Sally. Hey Jen. Are you ready for this week's love story about love? I I love a love story, and my favorite love stories are the ones about love. That's awesome. <laughs> Perfect. 
because that's what I've got for you. Most of my information was from a couple of sources, one being a television show, which I will name soon. And uh, the other, <laughs> an article for it's called Amo Mama, and it's written by Manuela Cardiga. So I already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Sally, have you ever seen the show Married at First Sight? No. Okay. I knew you were going to say no. I actually watched. Is the, it a um, cooking show? Jen, is it a no. cooking show? Then no. no. My answer um, is no. I uh, I actually watched The Married at First Sight, the season that was on Netflix, the most recent one. Uh-huh. And I, I got to say, I wasn't really a big fan. It was like it moved kind of slowly. But then when I found this story and I read this article, then I went back and I watched I like fast forwarded through like it, the show follows several couples, but I was only interested in this couple for the sake of this story. So I powered my way through that season by just fast forwarding <laughs> through all of the other couples and stopping when I got to this couple. Okay. So the, the couple that I'm talking about is a couple named Jamie Otis and Doug Henner. And it's their true love story, which started from a reality show called Married at First Sight. Love it. Um, it's pretty, it, it's, it's pretty crazy. Okay, so Jamie had actually been, like, that was not her first reality show trying to find love. She was actually once a contestant on The Bachelor, oh. um, but didn't make it that far into it. And she thought that she was kind of over the reality show dating thing. Who knew that you could get a second chance at <laughs> reality show dating love? But Well, if you have so, a good enough agent. <laughs> I guess so. But apparently, yeah, some... Um, not to uh, be producers, yeah, reached out. I mean, she's gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. So they want her on TV. But yeah. they reached out to her and asked her, you know, how her dating life was going. And she was like, not so great. And they're like, would you be open to meeting some professionals, like some professionals that are going to help you find your soulmate? And she said yes. But what she didn't know was that these professionals were going to help her find her soulmate, that she was going to be asked to marry sight unseen. Okay. And so, yeah, so that's the premise of this show. Meredith for sight, it's just like it sounds. Basically, uh-huh. the, the participants agreed to marry someone chosen by a team consisting of clinical psychologist, a sexologist, a sociologist, and a chaplain. And so she... I don't feel like anybody who is a reputable one of any of those things should be participating in this kind of reality show. I don't know. Okay. I, this is what I would have thought at the beginning too, but we got to like get, let's get to the end here and then let's discuss. Okay. 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 I'm going to hold my snark. Okay. Hold your snark. Just for about <laughs> um, so, so Jamie and Doug both took part in the very first season of the show, which was in 2014. Since then, there's been like 11 seasons of this show. Okay. So a lot of people are doing this. Yeah. So the this so Jamie and Doug met for the first time ever at the altar, and when they first met, sight unseen, Jamie was not happy with what she saw. <laughs> And and no, I think Doug is like a cute guy. He's he's tall, and I think he's cute. But she was just—it was not what she was expecting. She yeah. was expecting to be knocked over. She said that in her mind, she built it up to where she just thought that it was going to be like instant chemistry, instant butterflies, and like that's the man of my dreams standing at the altar. But she was like, "Oh my god, I'm not attracted to him. I'm not attracted to him at all." But something made her just keep going through the process. So she. She said, I do at the altar. I married him. Even though afterwards she was like crying to her family and like, and friends, like, what did I just do? I'm not attracted to him. But he was so patient and so kind and he didn't get his feelings hurt at all. He was just like, you know, this is a weird thing. You know, this yeah. is a weird experiment that we're doing. And you know, he was so patient and kind. And, and even at the wedding, which immediately followed like the reception, he was so lovely to her family and to her nephew. So she started to warm up to him. And then right after reception, they then send them on a honeymoon together. 
And so right away, she told him like, look, I am not comfortable with touching. I'm not comfortable with affection. I don't, you're still a stranger to me. I don't know. You know what I mean? He was totally fine with that. In fact, during the entire season, they never slept together once. So the whole season, I think they spend eight weeks together. They move in together. They go on a honeymoon and then they move in together and they never slept together, but slowly and slowly over the eight weeks, she found herself falling in love with him. And like, just because he was so kind and so funny and just so warm and um, caring. And she said at her wedding, she cried and said, I feel like the experts failed me that they like, she was like, they all failed me. I trusted them to find me my soulmate and they failed me. After the eight weeks, the couples then have to decide if they are going to stay married and get divorced. And even at the eight week mark, they still hadn't had sex yet, but they still agreed to stay married. Wow. Yeah. And then by the time that they had the six month follow up reunion show, which I watched. So a lot of this information (laughs) is just going off by what I watched. Right. (laughs) So, and he, and he, by the way, was falling madly in love with her. But when they got to the six month reunion, they were both head over heels staring into each other's eyes the whole reunion while other couples were ripping each other's faces off and yeah. telling them they obviously didn't work out, but they were so in love. The thing was, Jamie had been in emotionally abusive relationships before and she had a really hard childhood growing up. Mm-hmm. And so she what she needed was a man who was like supportive loving and gentle and that's what the experts knew that that, yeah. that like they knew that she needed that and that's what they chose for her and even though in the beginning she was like uh-uh this is a mistake you picked wrong it it ended up he ended up being exactly the person that she was looking for they're relationship was for the first eight weeks was just them getting to know each other and then just the act of just spooning at the end of the night and talking to each other just made them let their guards down and really connect yeah so and now while they were together so they stayed married and at the six month reunion they were you know head over heels uh, in love but the first year was just like any other couple's first year is going to have some ups and downs they were getting used to you know moving in together and now you know we're you know we're a married couple and now they're just getting used to each other essentially so a year after they were married so on their one year anniversary of being married Doug surprised Jamie by getting down on one knee and asking her for his her hand in marriage even though he already had it <laughs> but oh, he said yeah. that he, he he always wanted to get down on one knee and propose to the person that he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. So he did it the way that he had always wanted to. And then they ended up having another wedding and uh, a renewal of their vows. Jamie, who was once reluctant, said, our journey began a year ago when we said, I do as strangers at the altar. What I didn't know then was that I had just met the most amazing, kind, patient, and handsome man. And so, yeah. And so then as a gift to him, Jamie handed Tug a tiny little box and inside was a slip of paper with her name on it, with her new last name. She had changed her name to Jamie Nicole Henner. And um, he apparently he cried and cried when he saw it because it just touched him so much. So two months after their first anniversary and their vow renewal, Jamie and Doug announced that they were expecting their first child. But sadly, the happiness um, ended in heartbreak when when she was four months pregnant, she suffered a miscarriage, Mm. which was absolutely heartbreaking. Obviously, it was a hard blow for them. And um, they were just absolutely devastated. She had a little boy. And then uh, about four months later, Jamie and Doug found out that they were expecting another child. Um, and, and she was thrilled to be expecting again. Um, she was fearful losing the baby throughout the second pregnancy, of course, as anyone would. But on August 22nd, 2017, they welcomed their daughter, Henley Grace Henner. So, Aww, um, and good. she's so cute. I yeah. know. And then um, she's so adorable. And then, so then again in January 2019, she lost another baby. 
but the um, couple soldiered through. And at that same year, Jamie became pregnant again, and everything went well with this pregnancy. And on May 13, 2020, Jamie, Doug, and Henley welcomed Tiny Hendrix Douglas into the family. And I know that it is, it's so heartbreaking, the two uh, miscarriages that she went through in between the two healthy pregnancies, but I feel like it's really important to talk about because Sally, you've been through it. Mm-hmm. I and and I know so many people that have miscarried in between pregnancies. Oh and, yeah. Um, it's so it's so it's common. So common. And I think that it's really important for people to talk about and know that it is uh, very common. And and that just to see the 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 hope that if even though you miscarry you can certainly go on to have children. Yeah, um, and I think I mean I know I talked about it before. I talked about it more at the beginning of when we first started the podcast. So if you've been right. listening from the beginning, about I mean right when we started, I had just had a miscarriage, and um, and then I had had one before I had Max too. And one of the things with miscarriage because we don't ever you know, we're all, we're taught, told like, don't tell anybody until you, you know, you're past your first trimester. And so a lot of times women miscarry and they haven't even told anybody. And so then it's like this big secret of like, you know, you're this like changed person, you were pregnant and then you, you know, you lost a baby and you're grieving, but you'd feel weird telling people. And so I think the more normalized it is, and I, I appreciate somebody who has like a platform, you know, she is a, they're reality stars and I'm sure people follow their lives that they're talking about it, that that's, that's just, I mean, it means so much to like women who are going through it right now themselves and don't see anyone around them to talk about it. I didn't know that many people who were moms when I had my first miscarriage. And so I really like didn't know how common it was. And I felt so alone and isolated and, and I, when I had the second one, I just was like, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> like I'm, I'm yeah. telling everyone, you know? So anyway. And I'm okay. really glad that you did because then we could all be there for you. Yes. That's why I just thought that it was very important that we included all of that into the story. Yeah. Because um, it's a part of her story. Like it, it it's is a, like, I feel like it's a, that my miscarriage is a part of my story and, and I, it's good that you're not erasing that part of her life and her experience or his life, their lives and their right. experience. Yeah. So yeah. you can continue to follow them on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're just the most adorable family. And I it's bet. just amazing to see this marriage that started, the marriage started on a reality show and they had never, they never met before. But it just to show how they survived all of the tests and tribulations of real life and that they are now that they have what they always wanted which and what they always dreamed of, which is a happy family. Oh, I just I like I love this story and it's it, it ended differently than I had um, anticipated when I first started reading it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then especially after going back and watching that season, it just makes me think like, wow, is there something to these experts who so they they have to fill out these questionnaires? They take like six hours to fill out. They interview them relentlessly, and they really dive into who these people are, and they really look into what do these people need in their life. And it's just amazing to me that they can match people up so well without having even seen each other. And then I just think that it's so interesting that what about? Think about all the people that you might meet and be like, no, I'm just not attracted to him. Right. And But like, what if what if you gave it a chance and now yeah. she's like madly in love with him and he is really handsome and she's yeah. gorgeous. She just, it wasn't her first instinct. And like, so it just makes you think, do I go with my gut or do I, should I give things more of a chance and right. see where they go and start out with a friendship? And I don't know. I just think it's so interesting and it makes me look at uh, things differently. Uh, should we give it a shot? Yeah. Like, okay, let's just tell. <laughs> no, but I'm saying like it sounds like a crazy, stupid reality show and like it's all just for like shock, shock value. Right. Like who wants to marry a millionaire? Like remember that show? Yes, I do. But it, uh, like all that shit, like just like shock value TV, but – when you watch it, like these experts, the ones that you were shitting on, Sally, uh-huh. Sally shitting on those experts, they really uh-huh. do. You, they really do care. They really do care, and yeah. they seem like professionals. Just saying, 
I mean, I, don't all knock I'm saying it until is, you try it. Don't knock it until you go on a television show and marry someone without seeing them. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm happy for this couple, but also I do recall you talking about the six month reunion when every other couple was shitting on each other. Yeah, so, like no, there maybe was they one just other, got lucky. <laughs> there was one other couple that that so two two out of the four couples made it. I don't oh, know. Well, if that's the, that's a good track record. I wonder that what the track is a good track that record is. And, the season that I watched in the Netflix season, the very last season, there's um, one couple that made it. <laughs> <laughs> I think. But I'm going to, now I have to go back and watch all 11 seasons. So Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll see Sorry, you when you're I feel you're like done. I was. I was all over the place with that story, but no, I, that was I, I apologize because I was like going through the article, but then also speaking to like what I had seen. So you guys, if I was all over the place, I'm sorry. I thought it was great. Blame it on the quarantine. Blame, Blame it on, it the, on quarantine. the quarantine. Blame it on the quarantine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 All right. <laughs> <laughs> Should we do something dumb and something we love sally i'm gonna be really honest with you yeah um as we were we're recording i was fidgeting with this pocket knife (laughs) (laughs) that my husband had on his desk and i can't shut it (laughs) well that's something Now I'm just sitting here with a fully erect knife, <laughs> ready for the stabbing. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, always be prepared, you know? Always, it's the always, Girl Scouts motto. Dang it. Now I have to, like, go up to Zach and be like, can you clone this? <laughs> <laughs> you know what you should do? Just pull, like, a super baller move, like, just a real, just like, stab fuck it you, and just stab table. it in the desk. So the next time he comes in, it's just stabbing into the table. And he's like, damn, better not mess with Jen. I'm just going to carve my name. Jen was here. Okay. So I think something dumb is everything. I think everything's dumb. Um, Yes. Yeah. Just the – Senseless killings, the backlash against protesters who are rightly outraged, just Trump having dumb photo shoots in front of a church. church I mean, that just he doesn't go to. Yeah, it doesn't go a Bible to, and that he doesn't read and tear gassing protesters to move out of his way so he can walk. It just, it's all so dumb. Uh, but one thing I love and is, uh, Jen, have you heard of a, this TV show? <laughs> have you heard of a TV show <laughs> called Magic for Humans? No. It's so good. It's actually, I think there's like five seasons. So I'm like way, I'm I'm way late on this. But uh, Ben and I started watching it. It is the magician and comedian, Justin Willman. And he is just such a talented magician. He does all this really cool close-up magic. And it's so amazing. And he's also really funny. And he does these, it's just, it's a great show. I, I highly recommend it. I was telling a friend earlier that like it's, it would be good with kids. And anyway, so that's my fun thing. And, um, and also Obama. Obama's always, Obama's always the thing I, I love. I love him. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. For um, something dumb for me, of course, the same, just everything that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. There just seems, just everything seems so bleak, but there are moments of, Light where you, we are seeing some things changing and some mm-hmm. and, and the protests working. Um, the something that I love is I was very happy to see that not only was um, Derek Chauvin charged um, and his charges have just recently been elevated in the mm-hmm. death of Joy, George Floyd, but three more, the other uh, three Minneapolis officers have also been charged in George Floyd's death. So I feel like there's glimmers of progress. Um, And I also want to say how proud I am of our mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she's so wonderfully eloquent. And the speech that she gave, you know, about being a mother first and foremost, I just, I just thought it was a very powerful speech. And And I love how it's bringing people 
together uh, in Atlanta. I, I love um, Zach's mom, who I love her. She's, I will say she's, she's a Southern woman, but she's, she's very um, liberal. Mm-hmm. And, um, but she texted my husband and said, I just love Keisha Lance Bottoms. I think she should be the next president of the United States. And then she said, <laughs> and then she texted and killer Mike for VP. And then, she, <laughs> and then she texted again and said, and maybe TI for secretary of state. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh no, I just love getting that text message. So, oh, that's, uh, I, one yeah. thing I heard on the the town hall that I just watched about police reform was one of the things that the Obama Foundation is challenging mayors of towns to review their police brutal or their use of force policies and yes. then report back, like sign a pledge, have a real discussion about it with community groups and then report back within 60 days about about what they're going to do to change things. And he was like, and we already have some mayors who have signed up and there were five mayors and one of them was was Keisha Lance Bottoms. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> it was very exciting. It made me proud to live here. Yeah, I'm just proud of seeing our community rise up and and wake up against and work against injustice. So you guys do that too. Yeah. You know, wake up, rise up. Rise up and be cool, uh, be cool and uh, get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum-da-dum, dum-dum, 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 d